owning your own firm someday is something that we all, those of us who've thought about being architects our whole lives are like, someday I want to hang out my shingle and have my own practice. And, you know, certainly family members or people outside the industry are like, oh, are you going to start your own thing? You know, so there's a lot of conversation around, or maybe some expectation as well around starting a practice. You know, what I often say is that if you want to be an architect and spend most of your time being an architect, then you should not start a practice (laughs) because a lot of your time when you're an owner is spent doing non-architecture things, not non-design things because, you know, even an invoice is a design project. But if you're not excited, like if someone says business processes or marketing or sales and you're like, oh, then you should not probably start a practice or you should partner with someone who is excited about that stuff so that you can focus on being more on the design side. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, we're very excited to be joined by Marilyn Modinger of Runcible Studios for a fireside chat about how to start your own practice. Marilyn is the founding principal of Runcible Studios. Like the Runcible Spoon, she is happiest operating at the seams between practicality and whimsy, utility and beauty, the esoteric and the mundane. She's deeply passionate about the capacity for design to affect positive change in the world. Marilyn's interest in all aspects of housing, the connections between urban and rural life, the construction process, justice in the built environment, and the overlaps among disciplines, methodologies, and practices fuels Runcible Studios' mission to be nimble, rigorous, curious, fun, and meaningful. An adjunct professor for over 10 years, she has taught design studios, construction detailing, building science, theory, and design build and community engagement courses in the Boston area. So. Very excited for Marilyn to join us and also very excited to have Sylvia joining us today. George is out meeting with the CEO, Robert, today. They're doing a big, deep work session down in Florida. We're thinking of them. Sorry that they're missing today, but it's going to be a great conversation. They can catch up like a lot of you next week on YouTube. So with that, thanks a lot, Marilyn. Well, it's awesome to be here. So glad to join all of you. It's fun. I'm seeing the names pop up on the side too. So hi to everyone who's here. That's great. Thanks for being here. Yeah, a lot of familiar names in here too and some new ones. So thanks everybody. Don't forget to add your questions throughout the conversation, either in the chat or in the Q&A. So how to start your own practice. Marilyn, let's get started. Should everybody start their own practice? Um, In school, I always think that like when you're an architecture student, you're sort of learning how to be a principal in that you're thinking about the design direction, how you would practice overall, because when you start into the profession, you certainly don't have the same kind of liberties like you do as a student. So you can't really act like a principal, but is it for everybody? Now that you've been in that seat, should everybody eventually become a principal of their own firm? I'm going to say probably not, just statistically. It takes a certain kind of personality and set of interests to want to own your own practice. 
So I think it's a really good idea if you're considering it to first, before you get into the nuts and bolts of how to do it, to start with whether you should do it. I mean, Chris, I think it's a great point that a lot of times in school, we're sort of pushed in that direction. You know, owning your own firm someday is something that we all, those of us who've thought about being architects our whole lives are like, someday I want to hang out my shingle and have my own practice. And, you know, certainly family members or people outside the industry are like, oh, are you going to start your own thing? You know, so there's a lot of conversation around or maybe some expectation as well around starting a practice. You know, what I often say is that if you want to be an architect and spend most of your time being an architect, then you should not start a practice (laughs) because a lot of your time when you're an owner is spent doing non-architecture things. Not non-design things, because, you know, even an invoice is a design project. But but if you're not excited, like if someone says business processes or marketing or sales, and you're like, oh, then you should not probably start a practice. Or you should partner with someone who is excited about that stuff so that you can focus on being more on the design side. I think a lot of people sort of discover that. <laughs> that they don't actually like the business part and they're sort of surprised how much time it takes. So I would just say that, you know, no, not everyone has to. But if you think, you know, the business stuff's kind of cool. I mean, I love the business side. I think it's really interesting and it's cool. And if that feels interesting to you, then yes, I would say you're a good candidate to consider starting a firm. I'm curious, Marilyn, was there a moment for you that after that moment you were like, I'm going to start my own firm. And what was the first step you took? How did you go about doing that? And like, is there something that sticks in your mind as a very vivid memory of that moment for you? Yeah. So I always say I accidentally started my firm. (laughs) I had no plans to start a practice. So I was working as a full-time administrator in academia at a design school. And that was super fun. But I soon realized... (laughs) that I want to build buildings and make buildings. And I was not, while I love writing curriculum and I still teach and I love all that kind of stuff, that was not what was my true calling of what I wanted to do. So I left that to kind of, I needed to regroup. I needed to think about what I wanted to do next. And so I also had three more ARES to pass. So I said, you know what? I'm going to take six weeks I don't have a job lined up. I don't have anything organized. (laughs) You know, I'm going to just live on my savings and think and pass some Aries. So that's what I did. And I passed. So I was still teaching. So I had some income coming in and I took on. So that was in November of 2013. By January, I had passed all the rest of my Aries. And so I said, well, now I'm an architect. That's cool. So now when I start to look for a job, I'm sort of applying as a registered architect, which felt different. But a funny thing started to happen. I started to get questions from people saying, hey, you're out on your own. Could you help me out with this? Could you pinch hit on this? And I said, well, you know, I've got some teaching lined up. Yeah, sure. I can pinch hit on some stuff. So one month goes by, two months, three months, April rolls around. So I've been at this for five months, just kind of like piecing it together, feeling it out. And I was like, I need to start an LLC. This is actually happening. This is really happening. (laughs) So I sort of fell into it. And at that point, then I was actively saying, I'm starting a practice. Let's go. 
So I put together a website, which was like two pages and had like a lot of studio work from grad school. And it was a disaster. <laughs> and I got one of my first big jobs because I got myself invited to a party and pitched myself <laughs> in like the sort of serendipitous way to someone who needed an architect. And I was like, I'm an architect. And then I got that job and then I was really off to the races. So it was sort of like um, a slow build. And then all of a sudden I looked around and I was like, oh, I'm running a business. <laughs> and sort of at, at that stage, then I started to do things like, oh, I should probably get like a domain so that I don't, it's not like Marilyn at Gmail. <laughs> like I should probably like, so with each little step, it, it felt more and more official, but it was six months between when I quit my job and when I officially started an LLC. And it was about a year from that point before I made enough money to not have to teach three classes a semester and live very, very, very frugally. <laughs> so yeah, that's how it got started. I'd love to hear about, like, it seems like the start of the practice is starting to hear from people like, hey, I'm actually looking for an architect. I have a situation where I could use an architect. How have you when you kind of reflect on that moment to like now you hear that and you start to craft the dialogue from that moment to them becoming a client if you could reflect on what it was like at the beginning and then sort of the lessons that you realized to where you are now in terms of constructing that where you're basically turning it into a professional relationship with this person yeah um that has had some there's some interesting stories along the way there <laughs> especially as a woman architect. <laughs> but generally, when you own your own business, what I've discovered is that you're sort of always on no matter what. So the way I do it, because I don't want to be all salesy <laughs> and I like to just be out and be myself. But if I'm at some sort of party, even just like a informal, like I'm meeting people or whatever situation, just socially, then, you know, people say, what do you do? And I'm an architect. And if someone says, oh my gosh, my friend really needs an architect. What I've learned over the years is how to gauge what kind of conversation I should have next. <laughs> so if they're like, oh yeah, my friend like needs an architect and they're just sort of like chatting. I'm like, oh cool. Like how do they find one? Like what process are they using to try to find one? And I'm not like me, hire me, hire me. <laughs> so I just try to use it as an opportunity to understand more about what, how people choose to find an architect or I will say, how did you know you needed an architect? Because <laughs> not everyone knows they need one. And I'm not even just talking about for um, residential work, but also commercial and industrial, which is we do a fair amount of industrial work as well. But you got to, in my experience, you have to be, you have to let people know that you're available <laughs> and that you want work. <laughs> so over the years, I've learned how to judge that initial, like, oh, wait, what? Someone needs an architect and not be all like <laughs> salesy with them and just start the conversation and not like whip out a business card right away. So that just takes practice. So at the beginning, wasn't as good at it, but I had a really good example set for me in my former boss when I was, so I was a contractor before I was an architect. <laughs> So going back in time, so after I did undergrad, I worked as a contractor for four years, like for a contractor, not on my own. Started in the field, worked my way up the whole nine yards. So 
my boss, the owner of the company there was masterful at having those sales conversations in a way that just felt natural and helpful. He was a resource to people, you know, and I say to people all the time, it's not about you hiring me. I just want you to have the best outcome for your project. (laughs) And like, if I can be a resource for you, great. So I feel like I had a good example in him. And then also just sort of learning over the years what works and not being afraid to try, try things and see what feels natural to you and your approach and your personality. When you were figuring these out in the beginning, where did you look for support or resources for the things that you didn't know and had to learn along the way? You mentioned you had this former boss. Were there other mentors or did you find other communities that you can take insights from? So uh, I turned to Google a lot. (laughs) I was like, how to buy insurance? (laughs) Like, I don't know. What insurance do I need? (laughs) And what I started to do was just ask people around me who, so the insurance question I asked, I asked someone who I who I was teaching with, I was like, hey, like you guys just started your firm a couple of years ago, who do you use for insurance? And she said, oh, this guy, like call him, he's great. Turns out he works with half the small firms in Boston. <laughs> so it was great. So I just sort of asked people and that required me to just not be afraid of sounding dumb. Because at first I was like, if I ask her, she's going to be like, you don't know about insurance. But that wasn't the case at all. She was like, oh yeah, here's my guy. Give him a call. Perfect. So asking other people that were sort of just in my world. And then honestly, Twitter in those early days of my business through Twitter discovered Entree Architect, which has been a huge resource for me over the years to the point where I have a mastermind group through Entree Architect and we meet once a week and have been for five years, meeting once a week (laughs) before Zoom was cool, we were Zooming. And we have met in person all together only once in five years. So again, this fall, we're planning a retreat for ourselves, but that group, we have our own Slack channel and that our, you know, there's seven of us and our sort of learning with each other. And we're all in different parts of the country, which is helpful because Having local people is great because they can say locally, here's my insurance guy. But also if I need to ask a question about like, hey, uh, this client or developer, like this feels like a shady situation, but I don't want to say that I might be in competition with the person I'm talking to or whatever, but talking to my friends from Portland, Oregon and and Chicago and whatever is like, I can feel you know, that I'm getting advice that is not just to my locality and that is confidential. So those are the main things, honestly. There's some sort of resources. The AIA is not super strong with small firms. There are some good resources and good things to read. Yeah, that's what I would say. Various networks. For those who don't know what mastermind, like the mastermind model is, could you share a little bit more about how that model works and maybe a great story about like a lesson that you could never have gotten if you didn't have access to this network? Yeah. So a mastermind, we, so it's a group of seven of us. We meet, like I said, once a week and we put a different person, a different one of us in what we call the hot seat every week. And it's broken into quarters. And by the way, a mastermind could do this in various ways. This is how our group has collectively decided to do things. And when, and so we give quarterly reports about our business. We talk about 
everything. We talk about money. We talk about hiring people. We talk about family because we're small business owners and, you know, family stuff plays in. We've been through all kinds of things together personally and professionally at this point. And I think that's one of the most valuable things is I can say to this group, this is something that I'm going through personally that's affecting my professional decision-making. What do you guys think? And they know me as a person well enough to know how to advise me or how to ask me questions that are going to be helpful. So not necessarily a specific example, as you just asked, but a mastermind and ours is a closed group. So it's our group and people don't come and go, you know, it's, we are dedicated to each other and we are there to solve each other's problems. So even from as simple as when you're in the hot seat and you have an hour of people like helping you specifically on your quarterly goals and your quarterly reports, we also have our Slack channel. So if I can fire off a quick question, like, Hey, I'm negotiating this contract and the client really wants to put this in it. My lawyer says this, but what do you guys think? <laughs> you know, as practitioners, and you can feel safe asking that question, knowing that, that they know you personally and that they have your business. They want what's best for your business. Not just, they're not trying to sell you something. They're not trying to get business out of you or anything like that. I would love to talk a little more about fees since you brought up like how in their masterminds you discussed that. Was there any challenges when you first started about like how much do I charge my clients and like then do you just break that down into hourly fees and how many people work on this project? Can you walk us a little through the process? Yeah, totally. So there's actually like a little mini lecture that I give with a whiteboard about how to set your fee. <laughs> and that most of the time architects when they're starting off and beyond set their fees way too low. If someone says to you, how about $50 an hour? That sounds amazing. <laughs> but as an owner and as a sole proprietor, like the first thing that comes out is taxes coming and going. So the ones you pay as a W-2 and the ones your employer pays for you, when you're self-employed, you pay both taxes. You also pay all your health insurance. You also pay all kinds of other things like errors and emissions insurance and all that kind of stuff, overhead. So that $50 an hour, you know, in the exercise, the punchline is it comes down to like $2.74 an hour. So, because also here's the biggest hit to that is $50 an hour cut in half right away, because as an owner, you are not going to be more than 50% billable because 50% of your time, you're going to be spending on calling the insurance guy or chasing new work or, you know, figuring out the printer because it just blew up and there's no IT department. Like that's you. So right away, if you say, well, 50% of my time, I'm going to be spending doing things I can't charge people for, then right away, my hourly rate needs to be double what I think it needs to be. So that's a starting point. <laughs> then now we're talking. So when I first started, my hourly rates were 100 an hour. So <laughs> there you go. And that I set because I said, I did some research and asked some people around, like, what do people charge? You can look it up in RFPs and public places, what architects charge per hour. And I felt, so 100 is low, but I felt starting off and I'm newly registered and I'm trying to figure this out, it felt fair. And uh, I used to, at the beginning, do all of my work hourly. It was the easiest for me to wrap my head around because I didn't have the experience of saying, I think this job's going to take 100 hours. Like, I don't know how long it's going to take. So it was easier for me to charge hourly. 
and keep my clients updated. So not charge hourly and then six months later be like, here's a gigantor bill, but charge hourly and give them milestones and talk about why we're doing what we're doing. And, you know, you realize if you ask me to redesign the kitchen again, that that's probably going to take me a week or two. So I learned to keep people posted early and often, because then that's the difference between chasing people for money and having people be like, yep, that's what I was expecting. Here's your check. (laughs) So I learned that early. As time went on, the way that you make money as an architect is you do not charge hourly. You charge lump sum and then you beat the fee. That's how you do it. (laughs) That means that's what good contractors do. That's what everybody does. So you say, okay, in your head, this is going to take me 100 hours, and it may or may take you 120. You can only charge for the chunk for 100, right? If it's a fixed fee. If it takes you 120, you eat those 20 hours. It's on you. If it takes 80, you get the difference. So the incentive is to thread the needle between doing the best you can and also beating your own fee. Because the reality is in architecture and design in general, you're going to have overruns because things just happen and you're not going to want to nickel and dime your customer all the time. So I right now we charge of a percentage of construction. It's actually on my website. I have my fees posted on my website. Very few architects do that. I don't know why. We all charge the same things. And there's a website. I think it's called architecturefees.com. It's linked on my website in my thing about fees. But that goes into a very in-depth description, tons and tons and tons of information. And it's an amazing resource for understanding the history of fees, understanding all the different types of fees, industrial, commercial, institutional, residential, the different levels and whatever. So I actually send that to my clients as well. I have an in-depth conversation about fees and where they come from and why we charge the way we do. And then I also send them that website. I'm like, here's more info because most people don't understand their reaction is that it's too expensive. And then the other key thing that I do is show people what they're getting for the fee. (laughs) So it's one thing, like if you just say to someone, is $100 too much? I'm like, well, it's too much for a taco, but it is not too much for a flight to Paris. So you have to tell people like what you're getting. (laughs) So that's another thing I try to do. So I walk people through a set. I'm like, look at all the stuff. By the time I'm on like page 10 of a 26 page set, they're like, okay, okay, we get it. There's a lot. You got to show a lot. And I'm like, and another thing, we got to show the framing and another thing. And they're like, okay, okay. (laughs) So that's just to say that being upfront, communicating often, asking for what you really need to do the job. So architects are so good at negotiating themselves right out of fee before they even talk to anyone. So let's say you get out of your scratch pad and you say, I think the job's going to take me a hundred hours. And you're like, well, they'll never go for it. And so you're like, I'll just tell them it's going to be 80. You're like, you've just, what? No, the first rule of negotiation is you don't start with your low ball. You start higher. So I think there's also a perception in architecture that we should not negotiate or that there's this idea that we're all gentlemen architects and we don't market and all this kind of stuff. And that's based in old rules and Sherman Act antitrust stuff. And there's a whole bunch of reasons historically why that's true. But the point is that set your fees. If you're just starting off, set them higher than you think, but don't overestimate yourself um, and charge for the hours you work and be clear with your client about what they're getting for that dollar amount. How have you, in the course of practicing 
move between deciding, you know, the real way for me to become more profitable at this moment is simply to work on increasing price and increasing the value that you present to the client on new jobs versus more of an efficiency model where, you know, the real decision at this moment in the practice to be profitable is I have to really look at the hours that this is going to take me and what do I need to do to reduce that amount of hours? Those two like levers, like what are moments where you've decided that pricing is the right lever versus operational like efficiency is the right lever? That's a really good question. I mean, I would say that I've got my eye on both of those levers all the time, knowing when the right job is where I can really crank on one. So for example, we just made a pretty big shift over the last two years to Revit. So we've always been CAD and that's a big deal. So how do I get my whole practice up and running in a software that's new for us, that all of our you know, usual processes are, are now blown out of the water? You know, that's really difficult. So we had to take a couple jobs where I did my normal fee because I can't charge them more just because I'm learning a new software. So I had to just eat it <laughs> and find ways to say, all right, well, some of this is overhead expense, like, you know, sending my team to trainings or hiring consultants who could come in and help us or having someone come build some of our families or whatever the case. Some of that can be overhead, but overhead money is still coming from all the jobs. So we would not charge that to a client, but it's still overhead money that has to get paid somehow. So that's a challenge and sort of got me off of a track that I was really enjoying of really tweaking and honing our AutoCAD processes. We're actually coming full circle and doing something that most people don't advise but so far we're doing it. So check back in in a year or two. Maybe we're like, just kidding, that was a terrible idea. But actually running both programs and depending on the project, <laughs> determining where which program it's supposed to live in. And that has its own challenges. But what is great about it is that then we can tweak our efficiency. We're not trying to shoehorn a project into a software or a process that isn't right for that project. So it has other challenges too. You know, something that has happened in terms of the raising prices lever that's been complicated over the last year is COVID. So I'm sure everyone on this call, <laughs> if you're in the industry, you know, and if you've seen any sort of news report for the last two years, you know that everything's been really expensive. I mean, at one point, lumber was four and a half times what it had been the year before and all of that. So if we base our fee on a cost of construction, then our fee naturally goes up. So you could say, well, why? that's not fair. What? Why should your fee go up just because the cost of lumber went up? And that is those kinds of questions you have to be ready with answers for because your clients will ask them because they're spending a lot of money. By the way, architecture and buildings is the most expensive thing that people will buy generally. Like there's nothing more expensive. We are selling the thing that's the most expensive thing that people buy. <laughs> so... I often think of that too. Like it feels every day to me, but this it's a business. It doesn't, it's not even just people's houses. It's people's businesses, the institutions, whatever. This is the most expensive thing that they are doing. So reminding myself of that and not being like, well, we should get our fee anyway, but saying, no, wait a second. Let me take this from your perspective and see why that would be frustrating that our fees are going up. The answer to it that I'm giving is 
the reality is we're doing way more work in the COVID era in terms of sourcing materials. You know, things are, we spec everything and then two months later, everything's six months lead time and I need things in two months. So I'm respecing and respecking. So I, we're behind, we're not ahead on, you know, those additional fees. So generally, again, communicating early and often about that stuff helps ensure that people aren't surprised by that. And the news media has done a good job of talking about this issue. So no one is surprised to hear about the supply chain. <laughs> so that helps. But in terms of those two levers that you're describing, there's also short-term and long-term. So every contract you enter into, you are going to be in for a year or two or three. I have one that's going on four or five. So you got to know like this is a marriage, not like a one night stand. So you have to think about what can you do here? You're going to be in it for a while. So what can you do to like make each situation slightly better for yourself based on learning from the last one while also ensuring that you're trying to build a relationship with someone, you know, you're not trying to just come in and, and be unfair about stuff. So raising prices is something that we do from time to time. Our fees have gone up. And so we play with that lever a little bit, but it, there's, so there's short-term things you can do. Like every contract that you look at, you make sure that you're calibrating that stuff. And then there's longer term vision. What are the efficiencies that we're trying to lock in so that each job we can, it's not just about getting it done faster. It's also about, I mean, what we do is hard work, right? So figuring out how to be more efficient and collaborate more effectively is helpful on every front. Endless amount of hats that you have to wear as a business owner, as a designer, as a principal. And I'm also curious how much of your brain do you spend like you thinking about the future because like you said your fees that you lock in now you could be stuck with for the next four years and then also how do you prepare for things that happen like covid or how do you consider what does your firm need what can you do now to prepare for what your firm needs in six months maybe even a year like how forward thinking do you go with that well i think that's what you've hit on is one of the toughest parts of being a small firm owner I don't have a partner in my business, so all of those decisions and all of those things are on me, which is another reason why having a mastermind or a board of directors informally of people who you can consult with to help you think about it and get you out of your own head. Because I'm like simultaneously thinking about, wow, where do I want to be in five years with this business? And also like, I have to get this SK out the door because the steel guys are starting tomorrow. <laughs> and that's life as a small firm owner, which by the way is fun. So <laughs> I like being able to think at all those scales all at once and, and being like 7,000 pots on the stove and like moving around. I'm into it. So again, if that doesn't sound like you, then this is not a good thing for you to do. <laughs> but the long-term planning is one of the biggest challenges because you can, it is so easy to get sucked into the day-to-day -to, -day to the lie that we tell ourselves that as soon as we're through this deadline, things will slow down. They never do. They never do, right? Like we finish the deadline and there's something else coming along. So there's never that like, ah, okay, now I have six weeks to like think through my vision. So I said when I started, when I realized that I was starting business, <laughs> that the first five years of my practice would be a complete experiment. So just, I would take just about anything. I'm not trying to win any awards or something. I'm like completely in a positive way, opportunistic, like just anything. <laughs> and I would just learn as much as I could. 
everything like nuts and bolts, like every single contract, you know, thinking about it differently. Also tracking our hours. We've tracked hours for eight years. I have a huge like repository of hours versus fee for every project we've ever done. So I can see patterns and I can see how that's working. So data collection, even if you don't know how you're going to use it yet, is key. And there are architects who don't track their hours. And I'm like, please, it's terrifying. So because you need it for so many reasons. So I would say that, you know, in terms of the, so, so that was the first five years. When the first five years ended, I was like, oh, whoops, <laughs> what's your five to 10? <laughs> I forgot what I was supposed to do. And right about when that time was happening was right when COVID. So year six of our business, COVID hit. So, and I had just rented a new office. I just hired like a big new hire who was like registered, you know, full architect, like the whole thing to add to our team. I was looking to hire three more. I had just furnished the office. <laughs> I was like, we're ready. And then COVID hit. So there's no way to plan for that except to have a lot of cash reserve. You can't be operating so thin that you don't have a cash reserve. Before I hired my first employee, I saved up six months of his salary. And I told him that. I said, you're leaving a good job. You're coming to work for me. You're gambling on me. You're my first employee. And I want you to know, and I'll show you the bank statement. I have six months of your salary signed in a separate account. And that is, I want you to know peace of mind, how seriously I take this. There are months when I have gone you know, even as recently as COVID times without pay because, you know, my people get paid first. <laughs> so that, how do you plan for stuff like that? Cash, you have to have some cash. That means saving and saving and saving. That means trying to figure out what is, should I spend money on this marketing thing? Or should I, like, I'm finally hiring outside people. We're redoing our website right now. And I hired outside people for the first time in my life. It's really amazing. <laughs> Before, it was just me in the background all night, weekends, whatever, because I couldn't afford to pay someone because I was taking that money and banking it. And that's how we survived COVID, because I had cash. So NPVP, that was real. <laughs> that was a huge deal. So yeah, a bunch of our stuff completely fell out. You know, I had this office we were renting. Suddenly, we couldn't even be in it. It was pretty intense. And I would say we're still in it in a lot of ways. In fact, we gave up the office. <laughs> So we're fully remote now. What have you found as being effective in that remote transition? How has the office been operating remotely, like 100%? Just curious to hear, like, what has been really effective and you can't imagine ever dropping if you move to like an office setting again? Well, we kind of have a cheat code here. And that is that we, one of our main people has been four-fifths remote <laughs> since day one for five years. So we have always been a partially remote office. That was a special situation that I had not planned on repeating. You know, that's called living in the Boston metro area where traffic, instead of 20 minutes, it takes you two hours to get somewhere. That's just really stupid. <laughs> so we were doing almost all my client meetings via Zoom before the pandemic. So because if I have one client who works downtown, one client who works in Cambridge and I'm in Somerville, like getting us all together in the middle of the day, like is not happening. And by the way, no night meetings and no weekend meetings. So that means <laughs> the first question they say is, well, we work. Can we meet at 7 p.m. on Tuesday? No, because I'm not working then. So I, you know, have a life and other things I got to do. So I was like, oh, we're already using Zoom for 
remote working, what if we just do Zoom meetings with our clients? So we were sort of already in it. We're to the point where we actually do our design presentations. This is a, another cost savings measure that we started as a cost saving practicality measure, but ended up being an incredibly helpful tool for clients. And that is we make our presentations in CAD and SketchUp and Revit, like whatever program. We don't make printouts. We don't look at PDFs. We look live at the drawings. I piloted it with a few clients at the beginning who I knew were sort of like one was an engineer. So I was like, okay, he's like sort of into this. But now I do it with every client. And I walk them through our first meeting. I'm like, look, CAD looks like an 80s video game. You know, Revit looks like this really cool, like the project's already done. Like, here's your whole house. And they're like, it's done. I'm like, no. <laughs> so we actually fly them around and talk about each thing in the model live in Zoom. And that way, if they say, well, we'd really like to have, you know, the stove over here instead of there, or we really were thinking about the commercial kitchen being oriented this way, not that way. I'm like, okay, cut, copy, paste, flip it around. And the whole time they're like, oh, wow, that's so cool. You can just do that. <laughs> yeah. So it has a couple of benefits. They're seeing how we work live. They're seeing, it's like the proverbial sitting next to your professor while they're working on trace and how much you sort of picked up, or I remember in those days, picking up, watching them do that and hearing them narrate. So now I narrate to my clients and I say, okay, well, if we flip the stove here and it doesn't fit there because then it doesn't line up with the window and then we got to make the window smaller. So we got to decide if that's the thing. And they suddenly realize that making decisions or sticking to decisions or whatever, they can see the implications. They can see under the hood about what we're doing. I'm just a believer if people actually know what's going on, then it's better for everyone. <laughs> so rather than showing up with a whole bunch of like, now we don't do that for community meetings or big presentations for developers talking, you know, like I'm not talking about, you know, sort of more formal presentations, of course, get out the renderings and do all our diagrams and do all that good stuff. But in terms of like a work a day design meeting with the client, or we'll also bring in engineers to that conversation and work with everyone live. And we're doing that on Zoom. So we had sort of already been doing that. And when we had to go remote, we were like, all right, we're ready. What has changed during the pandemic is everyone else is more used to it. We had to really warm people up to it. Now people are into it. So it's easier. The things that we don't do, that we always still do in person, are we spend a lot of time at the project before we start. We do our own existing conditions drawings, which is also something that people often want to farm out is the first thing they farm out. We do them ourselves. That's our time to get to know the building and get to know like just being in the space and feeling it is really, really important. And we've got a process in place that means we can get in and get out pretty quickly. So as long as the building isn't too complicated, we do that ourselves. And then the other thing we do in person is we go, especially for our residential projects, we do all the interior design. So I'm with the clients at showrooms and, you know, like, here's how this faucet feels. Like, here's how this tile feels. You know, you got to see it. So that stuff we still do in person is very important. I want them to feel confident in that stuff, that they didn't just see it on a website. I want them to feel confident and excited. Like, oh, yeah, I remember that tile. And they they can take a sample home and they're they're into it, you know? So in that way, they become part of our process in a little bit better way. So it helps from the design side and then it also helps from the mechanical side because and the business side because then they see how much we do and they see the value and it works out better.
There are so many smart decisions in that. I just loved hearing about. I've spent a lot of weeks like redoing presentations the night of of design changes that happened that day for a client meeting tomorrow. So yeah, that sounds great. Let's get to some questions and a Q&A. One of them, how has your practice grown or changed in size and organization over the years? And I also had this question in mind too, because I'm assuming there's some key choices you had to make along the way to grow. Like who did you hire and like who was instrumental in your growth along the way? Well, I say I got some amazing advice from several different people early in my owning my business, which was when I was starting to consider hiring someone, I was two years in, I was like, I got to hire someone, you know, I'm ready. And the advice I got was hire the most expensive person you can possibly afford. Do not hire an intern for your first hire. Do not hire an intern for your second hire or your third. It has to be your fifth or whatever, you know? So that was really hard advice. I was like, what? <laughs> that means insurance and like a 401k, like that's grown up stuff. Like, I don't know. I was kind of thinking like a summer intern and no. So I ended up following that advice and I targeted a very specific person who's still with us, Jason. He's, he was my first hire. He's still with us. He's my right-hand man in the firm. I had worked with him before at another practice and I was just like, he's perfect. He's the right combination with me to help me get this off the ground. So I pitched it to him and, you know, it took some time to talk it through and figure it out. But my first hire was a targeted person that I knew that I wanted. After that, I've hired in various ways. We have some 1099 folks who work for us now or who work in a 1099 capacity in Massachusetts. The rules are a little different, but, and we also collaborate with firms a lot. So I have two or three firms that we collaborate with pretty consistently. So we don't actually have a ton of staff, but what we do is we pair up with other firms to go after bigger stuff or to work on things together. So there's three firms I'm thinking of right now that we've got processes in place. I call them, I'm like, hey, I got one for us. This fits our, like we have like, with each of these practices, we have like our profile of what works for our collaboration. I'm like, I got one for us. And then we go right in. So the first couple might have been tricky to figure out. But yeah, in terms of hiring people, that is a really, really, really difficult thing. So that's how we've sort of gotten around it in various ways. It's really hard to take on an overhead person as well. So just another question. I was wondering if you have any particular advice for a small studio specializing in residential projects only. Do you think, Marilyn, it's a mistake to limit a practice this much just to one typology? No. In fact, most people would advise you that it's smarter because then you can be more targeted in your uh, marketing and everything is just easier because you're not trying to talk to seven different audiences. So this is one of our problems is that we work with a wide variety of different people. So therefore, we can come across as not being an expert in anything. So... I work really hard to say like, all right, well, this is what we do here. This is what we do here. This is what we do here. This is what we don't do. And people are hiring you because you're an expert. And if you say, I'm an expert in this, and that's the thing they want to hire you for, that's great. <laughs> so I think generally, and as I've gone along, I've learned about project types that I tried that weren't quite the right fit or weren't fun or I didn't enjoy or something like that. And we do a lot of residential work and I love it so much. So, I mean, I think you should absolutely specialize and plenty of people do. Here's a follow-up question from your previous one. Uh, how did you divide up your scope of services and collaborations? 
uh, just dependent on the project and dependent on the skills and interests of the people on the team. So uh, with one of my collaborations, me and the other owner switch off project to project who's signing the documents. So whoever's sealing them, you know, stamping them will have the final say. So that one will mean that most that it's on their servers and we're, you know, that I'm the guest on his, you know. So it will depend on the project. But sometimes it's more of a like we have done a thing where someone takes something through schematic and then we come in and take it through CDs or take it to a permit set. Sometimes the opposite. Sometimes we do all the test fit stuff and then hand it off to someone who, you know, it totally depends on the project. Anything is possible as long as everyone's clear on what they're supposed to be doing and what they get paid to do and your liability is sorted out as well. How does Runcible navigate cost benefit in presenting design options to the client when fee is based off of total construction? Great question. So generally, I coach the clients from day one that the options that I present are not going to be like, here's one where we, <laughs> you know, like if it's a house, here's one where we do a whole addition and we renovate your basement, we add a third floor, and here's one where we just do the kitchen. So by the time I'm presenting options and getting pricing on those options, I will have coached them such that those options are fairly narrow in terms of price and scope. Because otherwise, then you're comparing apples and oranges. You can't, you've got to be able to, you know, to compare that. I try to eliminate as many possible options as possible. People think they want more. I learned the hard way that showing clients 10 options is really, really, really overwhelming. I learned that the hard way multiple times. <laughs> so three is the magic number. So if you're showing them three options and you as a practitioner have a sense of what things cost and what things drive the price of construction, then you'll know hey, this is the one where I'm proposing something that is more radical, but in this one, we get, you know, this additional benefit. The thing, I think architects make mistakes sometimes about not talking about price early. So in my first meeting, before I even sign a contract or anything, my very first meeting, I ask the client what their budget is. And if they can't answer, then it, I'm like, then you have some work to do. Because I'm not drawing anything. I'm not talking any further with you until you know what your budget is. Everyone's got a number. <laughs> and if they're not willing to tell me. And so sometimes I'm like, look, I know you might be scared to tell me what your number is because you think I'm going to spend your money. But I am going to spend your money. You're asking me to spend your money on your project. Like, I have to know what I'm working with. I don't care if it's five cents or five million. You got to tell me what it is. I don't care. <laughs> And I think once people realize that I'm not there to like sneakily spend their money, then they feel more comfortable saying like, this is my budget. Literally, I don't care. There's a certain project below which we are not profitable anymore and I don't take projects under a certain amount. But in terms of the cost benefit analysis, if you're getting too far into that stuff then you need to bring in a contractor to give you real pricing. Most people love doing that. Right now, estimates take, you know, eight to 12 weeks because everyone's too busy. So there's a whole other, like, I could talk for an hour straight on how to get good pricing from contractors, how to navigate that particular part, because it's very, I used to be an estimator. So estimating is an art. It's a total art. And so 
that's like a whole little subset. So I hope that was mildly helpful. There's so much more to talk about on that one. Has your background in estimating, which is not something that every architect has, do you think that that has helped you price out your own services, estimate your own scope, like maybe more effectively than, and maybe the broader question there is like, what are some tricks <laughs> that you discovered in estimating that you've actually incorporated into thinking about fee? Well, when I was learning how to estimate, my boss said, how long do you think this is going to take? You know, like, how long do you think it's going to take to frame the house? And I would say three weeks. And he would say, double it and add 20%. <laughs> so I hear his voice in my head every time. We're optimistic generally about how fast we think things can go, especially when we're working in larger teams. So on our projects that have a bunch of different engineers and a bunch of complicated processes like various zoning or regulatory processes, then, you know, that type of thing is really hard to predict. So double it and add 20%. So I don't literally do that. But the concept is to know that my first estimate is probably optimistic <laughs> and that I should be a little bit more conservative. There's nobody's sad if you say, it's going to be a thousand dollars and it costs 800, but they're really pissed if you said it's going to cost 700 and then it costs eight. So I'm a big believer and I tell clients right away. I'm like, look, I used to be an estimator. I am not afraid to talk about numbers. We have to talk about numbers and we have to talk about the philosophy of numbers and we have to talk about how you feel about numbers and how certain numbers make you feel, you know, because this is going to be all about numbers. <laughs> and design and all that good stuff. But to like executing a project, you've got to talk about this other stuff. So generally I found that it's been helpful to me and that I'm unafraid to talk about it. I mean, my actual estimating information of like what a square of roofing costs from Charlottesville, Virginia 15 years ago is not useful. But what is useful is that I know that they calculate roofing in squares and what a square is. And so I know <laughs> when I'm talking to the contractor, you know, about like, I know what that means. And then when I get estimates from contractors, I'm good at reading them because I've seen them before. So it's not necessarily the dollar amount, but that, hey, you know, it's industry standard to include setting the windows in the framing number. Why are you breaking that out as a separate price? So that's an extra $5,500 that should normally be included up here. And they're like, oh, well, uh. <laughs> or that's not how we do things. That's fine. They're allowed to not do it that way. But then when I'm comparing it to estimate number two, then I can say, hey, wait a second, this is already included in this guy's number up here. So it's the philosophy of it and it's the comfort level of talking about numbers. I think that has been particularly helpful. I've been like keeping a list in my head of all the things that are helpful when talking with clients, like being honest with them, setting their expectations, communicating along the way very clearly. Are there any other things that you really like rely on to have a good relationship with your client? I think just being honest and realizing that doing a renovation or building a project, whether it's someone's personal house or whether it's a business thing or whether they're a developer is literally the most stressful thing that people do. And especially if you're working for clients who have never built anything. So in the residential world or business owners who are small business owners, we work for a lot like our commercial industrial work is often for small business owners who have also not built anything. They're not developers that, you know, is to remember that they're experiencing these things for the first time and to have patience and to understand that I've done this a million times, but they have not. 
and they'll be hesitant to ask questions or they'll want to, you know, like, are you sure? And they, they don't want to question you because, you know, my clients are fantastic and wonderful people. And I can tell when they're like, they have a question, they don't want to make it seem like they're questioning me, but they don't like something I did. I have to be really careful to listen to them and pick up on something when they don't want to say like, actually, I don't really like the kitchen, how you designed it. I'm like, okay. And they don't know because in architecture land, we're used to critique. We're used to the idea of pinning something up and someone being like, what if you tried it this way? And you're like, okay. But in non-design world, people are like, well, I don't really like how this is. And they're like scared to tell you. So it's about being sensitive and about being perceptive of what and listening and understanding that when they say the words they're saying, it might not be exactly what, like if they say, well, I want more windows in my kitchen, that may be because their current kitchen is really dark, not because windows are the answer. So sort of listening and gleaning and being empathetic <laughs> to what is a stressful process that they're learning as they go. Well, thanks a lot, Marilyn. Uh, we want to ask our monograph's favorite closing question. George would not be happy if we didn't fit this in. It's his favorite. Just to kind of change the whole atmosphere overall, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? I mean, y'all gave me this warning you were going to ask this question. And what I seriously, there are zillions of kind things that people have done for me. I mean, I think clients who've given me projects when I was just starting out and I had no portfolio. <laughs> That was a kindness that was not necessarily, um, you know, and I think about mentors who saw something in me and did something for me that pushed me further than I would have gone on my own. And I think sometimes the kindest things have been when someone has believed in me in a way that I did not believe in myself or didn't understand that I could do something. And they would say the kindest thing, like, well, of course you can do that. Why not? Why not? Give it a whirl, see what happens. And as I've gotten older, trying to internalize that more and having that attitude more as I engage with the business and life and whatever, but uh, the kindness of believing in someone, I feel like is something that has happened over and over and over from the very beginning in my professional life. Fantastic. Well, thanks for ending on that note, Marilyn. It's been a pleasure to uh, chat with you today and Sylvia. And thank you to everybody who joined in today. Always great to see familiar faces, familiar names, and uh, some new names too. Marilyn and I, we realized this, we didn't talk about it in, in the live session, but Marilyn and I actually, it turns out that we ran into each other years and years ago at SOM Chicago, the craziest little coincidence of this small world. And there's lots of people from I think all of our previous lives or current lives in the room. So thank you all for joining today. Yeah, thank you. It was super fun. It was super fun to be here. And I just want to say too, if y'all, this is not a pitch, but just a whatever. I talk about this stuff on Twitter constantly. So my practice, you know, what our projects we do, I'm on Instagram for that at Runcible Studios, but the behind under the hood business stuff at MW Modinger on Twitter. So they're, sort of two views of practice and I'm happy to engage on all these topics and more in those locations if that's helpful to anyone. Yeah, absolutely. So I just added Marilyn's Twitter into the chat. A lot of architects spend a lot of time on Instagram, certain amounts spend time on LinkedIn. 
you can really tap into Marilyn's thinking in Twitter. It's fantastic. It's a real service to the community to see how Marilyn is talking, not just to other architects, but also to developers and advocating for architecture in conversations that do affect architecture, but maybe aren't just with architects. So thank you again, Marilyn. I got to just continue thanking you for how expressive you are, vocal you are in the broader public forum. Well, thanks. It's a lot of fun. Thanks so, so much for your time. We need more architects. <laughs> got it. Bye now, everybody. Thank Have you. a great weekend. Hey, it's Sylvia from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. Monograph is designed for architects by architects. Over 450 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial or sign up for a demo today at monograph.com. Find out what a practice operations platform like Monograph can do for your firm. Get started at monograph.com. Talk to you soon.